You are listening to a podcast from Influence Church. We hope it encourages and empowers you to make a difference in your world for the kingdom of God. For any more information, visit our website, influencechurch.co.uk. Enjoy the message. This preach that I've, I've got for us today is something that I've been personally challenged with over the last kind of couple of months, really, and journeying through uh, Luke chapter 15 in the Bible. And the context of Luke chapter 15 in the Bible is that the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are complaining to Jesus about the clientele that are hanging around with him, you know, talking about sinners, talking about tax collectors, talking about prostitutes, uh, all these different people who they, they didn't think were good enough to enter the kingdom of God. And uh, Jesus begins telling stories, uh, and he tells three stories, one about a shepherd who had um, lost a sheep, and uh, he leaves his 99 sheep to go and find his one sheep. Uh, and then he tells a story which never really gets preached because it's really small, the story of a woman who had 10 uh, coins, loses one of them, and of course when she finds it, and he kind of hammers home the point of saying, you know, they, this is a celebration there is in heaven. This is the rejoicing that happens in heaven when one sinner uh, comes to know God. And then he tells his third story, which again has this moment of celebration, this father who seemingly loses a son, a son asks to take his inheritance early, goes and blows it all, squanders it, uh, and then returns home to his father. There's, uh, there's forgiveness, there's love uh, in that moment. But the story doesn't finish there. It actually ends with the narrative of the older brother who is uh, upset and angry that his younger brother, who was wasteful, has been given such a great welcome home by his father. And it's this story that I want to hammer home for us uh, today, if that's okay with you guys in Banner Castle. Um, I don't know if you've ever lost something. Uh, as a kid, I, I had a, uh, a teddy called Noddy. I don't know if you've ever seen Noddy, um, as in Noddy, uh, with big ears and, and all his friends. But I was a big Noddy fan growing up, and I had a teddy of Noddy, which I actually lost in uh, Richmond. Uh, dropped out when uh, we were going past Woolworths, and could we find it? Woolworths, I mean, that's a blast from the past. Could we find it? No. We searched high and low for it. There was many tears. I think that, that night I slept with a sock uh, sort of put together and, and cradled it because I, I was missing Noddy and of course Noddy was eventually replaced. But I know that the, my parents put out a search party for Noddy. They went high and low. And when we lose stuff, I don't know if you've ever lost your keys, but, but we really go through to try and find stuff. And, and this is what Jesus is saying within these stories of just how much it means to him to see someone come to know him, that he will search high and low. He will go to the, the lengths and breadths uh, so as that we can come into a relationship with him. 
But so this story that we're going to unpack from Luke chapter 15, um, I'm going to kind of split it up into three sections. We're going to look at the narrative of the younger brother who was wasteful, known as the prodigal son. Then we're going to look at the older brother. Then we're going to kind of try and work out what went wrong for them. And then we're going to go home. Does that sound okay for you guys? So we're going to first read some of the narrative of the younger brother taken from Luke chapter 15 from verse 11. It says, Jesus continued. Continued. He says, uh, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if it was like going to Blackpool or something like that, but um, so he went there. After he had spent everything, it says, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, that's a key line that that would preach. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Here he is working with the pigs, nothing to his name, squandered all the money. There's been a famine. He's working in a terrible job. And he comes to his senses and was like, how much better off would I be? At home, He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. We're just going to leave it there. We are going to obviously see the, uh, the father and son reunited as we continue the story. But just to look at this just for a moment. Obviously, I just explained before what's happened. If you haven't grasped it for yourself, this this son's gone on a massive bender. I think is the only way we can maybe put it in today's uh, language, if if we're allowed to say such a word in church. But uh, he's gone on a bender. He's blown up, blown all his as um, money that he's been given as his inheritance. And, and things clearly don't go well for him. He finds himself working a job, uh, looking after pigs. And it's interesting, I think, that the, the added insult is the pigs. Because as a Jewish man, as he was in this story, uh, he, he wouldn't have mixed with pigs. They were obviously an unclean animal. They, this was a no-no. So for him to be working this job, looking after pigs, was like almost like trying, Jesus is trying to get the point that this guy guy is the lowest of the low. He, he's gone so far away from where he should be. And I, I don't know about you, but uh, have you ever made some monumental errors and then eventually maybe found yourself walking home? I don't know if you've ever um, felt that you could do this on your own. And I guess what I mean by that is, do you think you can do life without God? You might not have squandered physical wealth. You might not have blown your, in, your whole inheritance. I mean, you might have. But um, sometimes we can be guilty of squandering our spiritual inheritance. Sometimes we can uh, be wasteful with what God's given us. Sometimes there are, are things that uh, just come and distract us or temptation gets in and we get pulled away and, uh, and uh, far away from what God has called us to be. And, and then the, there's this amazing line in the story where he says, where the, where the narrative says he came to his senses. 
Um, and maybe we're believing that for some people who aren't in this room at the moment, people who are currently not walking with God, people who should be in this room, people who have previously perhaps been in this room, and by that I mean in church, by that I mean in relationship with God, but at the moment are outside of that. There, there's a, a wonderful line, he came to his senses. So he, he squandered his living, he's miserable, he's the lowest of the low, and there he comes to his senses. He realizes actually he can't go on living like this. That, that actually there is more for him. The, the, the only person to blame here is himself. And I think that's key that when he comes to his senses, he, he isn't trying to, you know, put this on someone else. He isn't trying to say, well, it's my boss's fault. Well, it was my dad's fault. He shouldn't have given me the money. It was the pig's fault. It was my older brother's fault. No, he comes to his senses and takes the responsibility for his actions. And sometimes when we're being wasteful with what God's given us, sometimes when we're walking away from God, we, we, we haven't quite reached that moment of coming to our senses and we can put blame on other things. We can say, oh, well, it's their fault I'm like this. It's because of this situation that I'm having to act like this. This is what's pulling me away. But actually, if you get a moment to actually come to your senses, there, there, there's a, this incredible like, moment that comes to him and he's like, yeah, I need to get myself home. And by home, he means back to his father because he realizes he's going to be better off in his father's house. So he begins to think clearly and he begins to get himself home and he begins to talk out this rehearsed speech that he's going to do. You know, father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. Um, you know, I'm not worthy to be in your house, but will you make me like one of your hired servants? And, um, you know, I think growing up, I had to rehearse a few of these speeches to my parents. I remember once accidentally crashing my car 19 days after I passed my test. Uh, and when I say accidentally, I mean it was. Uh, I, I crashed on ice. No one ever taught me how to drive in my driving lessons on ice or on black ice. So I went round, around a corner and no one ever said, actually the best thing to do isn't to slam your brakes on. Uh, and I went smack into this wall and I kind of drove home and I remember driving home thinking, well, the, the, the front of the car I've just picked up and put in the boot of my tiny little Peugeot 106, or to be more accurate, my brother's tiny little Peugeot 106. And um, I, I was rehearsing this speech of what I was going to say, you know, like it wasn't me. And there were times when I was at school where I knew that a letter was coming home because I'd been badly behaved. And I would have to rehearse what I was going to say to prepare mum and dad and say, well, you know, I was there, but I wasn't really there. You know, the letter may say this, but another thing, but there, there, was, there, there was a rehearsed speech. But the difference, I think, between me growing up often and uh, this younger brother is he is actually remorseful. That he is at his lowest point and he's genuinely sorry for the way things have turned out, for the mess that he's made. And often when we read this story, we don't actually highlight many good points from the younger brother, but I want to highlight this one, that he was remorseful. Because, you know, so sometimes we, we can skirt around the edges. We know we've messed up. But, we'll, but we won't take responsibility for that. There may be people in this room tonight who know that they have made a huge mistake with something, but are still trying to reason it away, still trying to say it isn't their fault, still trying to blame someone else. But actually, deep down, 
you know it's your fault, the easiest and the quickest way to, to make a solution to that problem is to own up to it and get yourself home. And by what I mean about getting yourself home is get yourself right with God. Get yourself back in relationship with God because God in this story is meant to be the image of the Father. So, so where the Son is saying he needs to get back home to the Father, it's the mirror image is us returning to God, having messed up, having been wasteful, it's coming home. You know, the Son, a reason, you know, he reasoned that his Father was a fair guy. He, he didn't expect the red carpet to be rolled out. He's kind of hoping that he can come back as a hired hand. Um, he wasn't thinking any, you know, much more than that. He didn't think he'd get the welcome that we're going to read in a minute that he got. But he, he, he kind of thought that somewhere there was going to be a place for him back at his father's house. And, you know, when we do mess up in life, there are things that can hinder us. I th when I think of the younger brother, what could have hindered him? Well, shame, guilt can stop us returning home to the father. Pride can, worry, and also our view of our dad. And I, I think that the, 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 what I love about the younger son is, even though he didn't expect the red carpet, he did reason that perhaps there was a place for him in his dad's house in some capacity. So, you know, maybe in this room tonight, you're heading for crisis moment. You know that you're living outside of God's best for you. You know that you're, you know, just making a mess of things at the moment. You're making wrong decisions. You've been pulled away. You've been tempted by something. Can I tell you that the best way, the most simple way, the way that you, no one else is going to get hurt, the way that you can be protected in this is just to be remorseful, apologize, come before God. And he will welcome you with open arms. Might not be what you deserve, but it's what you get. And we're going to read this about what the younger son perhaps thought the father was going to say to him and actually what the father does um, from, from verse 20 in, in Luke chapter 15. He says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, he's doing this rehearsed speech that he, yeah, about how sorry he is. But the father said to the servants, almost like you can imagine him interrupting like, oh, shut up, son. This isn't important now. Beckons the servants over and he says, quick, bring the best robe and put, put, put it on him. He says, um, Bring a ring and, and put it on his finger. And it says, and bring sandals and put on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And this is a great passage of scripture. I love it because it's so joyful. And this is in an essence, an image of the gospel. You know, the son's ready with his speech, but while he's still a long way off, the father runs to him. 
says it, it says he's filled with compassion and runs towards him. And, you know, in this time, in this culture, men just didn't run. It wasn't because they were lazy, but it was almost, you know, a, a, to be dignified. Uh, the women and the children, they would run, but the, there was no way that the, the men were going to lift up their, I guess, I won't say skirts, but you know what I mean, um, because uh, they just wouldn't have shown their legs. It wasn't what they did. So for the father in that culture to get up and run would have been an incredible scene. And also worth noting that in that culture, it was really a shame culture. So as the son would have been approaching the community, people from the community would have come out to see just what the father was going to say to him, what he was going to do to him, uh, how the, uh, and probably expecting the father to either turn him away, to dismiss him, maybe stick one on him. I, I don't know if the father was anything like Muhammad Ali, but um, no, it's doubtful because obviously I've said it's a mirror image of God. So we can, yeah, we'll leave that for now um so um but but it was a shame culture so for the community to actually stand there and instead see this father run towards a son and not going hitting but going hugging for them to see him kiss the son for, for them to see this intimacy, this relationship, this welcoming back there, get the ring, will you bring the ring? And the ring we presume was a signet ring, ring, which would have been straight in that he's back in the family, straight in that this son is, isn't going to be a hired servant, which was his expectation, but he had full rights of sonship through the signet ring. And to bring the robe, which of course was a, a, a symbol of significance within the family, to, to bring the sandals, to kill the fattened calf. I mean, in, in those days, I, I mean, I think when you think of the old days, you think you got everyone sat around a fire just chewing on big lumps of meat. But in that culture, that eating meat was fairly a rare thing to do. So for them to say, I'm going to kill the fattened calf, we're going to have a party and celebrate. The, this isn't at all what the son was expecting, what the community were expecting, what the older brothers were expecting. But this is exactly what the father gives. Was it what the son deserved? Absolutely not. He has been a first class muppet, but it's 100% what the father gives him. And, and, and you know, it, no more is it what we deserve. Well, like we deserve from God, nothing. We, we mess up. We repeatedly mess up. We don't deserve anything, yet that isn't what God gives us. God gives us love. He gives us mercy, gives us grace, gives us acceptance. That I love where it says in Romans 5, 6 to 8 in the Bible, it says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die but God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us while we to if you want to transfer this verse while we were still sinners into this story while we were a long way off the Father comes running to us whilst we were still sinners, whilst we were in the midst of the mess, whilst we were at our worst, whilst we continue to mess up. He says that Christ died for us. He paid the price so that we could have that relationship with God. And more than, more than that, it is that God, when he sees us, he, he says, get the robe, get the ring, 
kill the fattened calf, get the sandals on their feet. He, he comes in hugging. He comes in kissing. There's an embrace. Do we deserve it? No, but this is what God gives us. Thank God that this is what he gives us. And, and I love the image of the father making the move running towards the son. The son doesn't even get to finish his apology. It's done. He's home. You know, the father went in kissing him, not hitting him. He hugged him. He was absorbing the pain instead of giving out pain. And some of us, I guess, need to break free of the image that we perhaps have of Father God today and get this picture in our head when we think of how God responds to us and our mess that he comes in hugging, not hitting. The narrative, I guess, then changes in the story to that of the older brother. So we, we've got the younger brother tied up. He's been a mess. He's been forgiven. He's home. Let's celebrate. And then that would have been the, how the other stories would have finished at that point. It's a great point. But then Jesus continues telling the story. And, um, you know, this is worth saying that this was a story. It didn't really happen. But it, it's, um, Jesus used it to get a point across. And the point that he was trying to get across to these um, teachers of the law was that, that, that anyone is welcome in the kingdom of God, really. And that actually some of you and your attitude is like that of the older brother in this story. And in verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field, so he was out working. It says, When he came near the house... He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your, your brother has come home, he replied. And your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so as I could celebrate with my friends. That's obviously like, you know, how they parted back in the day. Um, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He's, he was lost and is found. And the story ends there. Because the story ends there, we can't then presume what happens next. We can't think, well, then does the older brother come in? Because it's a story. So if Jesus meant it to end there, that's where it ends, on a bit of a cliffhanger. But, you know, it's interesting, the, the, the older brother, his response to the celebration of the younger brother, the, the emotion described in this story is anger. And, you know, I, I want to put to you today that there isn't just one lost son in this story. There is two that the older brother is equally as lost as the younger brother. It's just slightly more scary because he is, the older brother is more the type to be perhaps sat in the pews of church today. Not that we've got pews, but you know what I mean, sat in the seats in church today because the younger brothers may be outside of church. We may be believing for them to come back. But the attitude of the older brother is far more likely to be prevalent within the walls of church. You know, he was always around the father. He says, always around the father. That's what he says. He said he was faithful to him. He never disobeyed him. In fact, the story starts by saying he was in the field working. He was doing the work of the father. 
Um, he, he was doing his job, yet his response to this situation was anger, selfishness, entitlement, jealousy, and pride. And, you know, the older brother's mentality was all about what he'd done for the father. You know, he, he references saying, um, I've been slaving for you for years. His mentality was the younger brother had been wasteful and deserved nothing, and he was angry. And if we aren't careful, we can end up being like the older brother. You know, look at the language he used. Like, I've been slaving away for ages. Some, some, it was a duty to him. There was no beauty in it. It was a duty. It was a job to him. There was no joy in what he was doing. And sometimes we can find ourselves saying stuff like that. God, I've served you so hard. I've been faithful for so not long. And now this idiot comes into church. He's taken the role that I wanted. You know, God, my attendance. I'm at church every single week. I even turn up when there's no service. That's how good I am. And I'm sick. I've got this illness. God, I'm entitled I've been faithful. God, I've faithfully given every single week. I deserve a Porsche. I don't know if you're thinking, thinking that. I mean, I'm still rocking the Ford Fiesta. No, I'm not. Ford Focus, one up. But, um, you know, and you think, God, I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. You know, there's, there's people who are even Christians driving around in better cars than me. What, what do you think you're playing at, God? How come they're getting blessed? You know, this can be our attitude. We, we think, look, you know, these people who are in church, oh, I saw on Instagram, they were out enjoying themselves at a festival. They were no, no doubt drinking and doing all such things. It's interesting, you notice the, one of the attributes of the older brother is that they get personal. You know, no one else in this story mentions prostitutes apart from the older brother. I mean, we can presume from wild living that perhaps prostitutes were within what the younger brother did, but no one else mentions it apart from the younger brother. They get, prosti- they, they, they get personal by mentioning he's been with prostitutes. Do you know why they say that? Because it makes the older brother look better. You know, when he, he's having this discussion with the father, he's saying, oh, father, like, if I mention the word prostitutes, how can you argue? How can you really have this guy back in your house? How can you really accept him once again as a son if he's been with prostitutes? Like, seriously, are you, are you, having, a, are you having a laugh? And the only reason he says that is to make himself look better. Older brothers really enjoy the shortcomings of others. You know, I knew they'd mess up. I knew they weren't all they said they were. I don't know why they got put on team. They're flaky. And you know, the, the older brother is equally lost, just like the younger brother is lost because he's been very, very bad. Very, very bad, in quotations. The, the older brother's equally lost because he's been very, very good, in quotations. And I'm just going to read this list of things just because time's getting on. The older brother's equally lost because the work of the father is a duty, it's not a joy. The, the father is like a boss to him. And, uh, and maybe sometimes we can be guilty of making God like our boss. We can make Jesus our role model. But actually, when it comes to our attitude, um, are we actually living like he's our savior? Or is it all about us and what we do for him and how good we are and the reward we deserve and that we're doing him a favor, we're helping him out? Actually, 
If you think our attitude should be, God, without you, I am absolutely nothing. You know, older brothers pray to get stuff. They don't pray to lift up and worship God. Not, not that sometimes it's wrong to pray to get stuff, but actually the, the, the focus of the older brother is largely to pray because it benefits them not to just lift up and give adoration to God because he is God. Older brothers serve to be noticed. That's why maybe the worship team's okay, but the kids team, I mean, not even in the service. No way I'm doing that. Um, Older brothers forget the grace of God that's been extended to them when viewing others. Um, Older brothers dislike unqualified people given qualified roles. Older brothers have constant undertones of anger. You know, they go into rage, rage mode, but when they do, it's justified. Older brothers miss out on the joy of relationship with the father. Older brothers miss out on the joy of seeing the most unlikely people grow in the likeness of God. Older brothers leave the party when the party starts because they remember that they are yet to have one held in their honor. Older brothers hold grudges. Older brothers, I want to put it to you, are just as lost as the younger brothers. And just to summarize, let's have a look at what were the failures of both of these brothers. And I've put the failure is their lack of identity as sons of the father, that sonship was, or the lack of sonship, because they were both sons. And in fact, in, in that culture, the older brother probably had even more rights than the younger brother, but they were both heirs. They both had inheritance. They both had an estate. They both had a role. They both had a job uh, in management within that estate. And sonship in that time and culture meant a heck of a lot more than it does today. It really was a huge deal. It really was significant. It had status attached to it. Um, and, and one massively failed one was faithful but both of them were this they were both lost and they were both sons and what I love about the father and the beauty of the father is he doesn't look much past those two points they're both lost but they're both sons and I love in Galatians in the Bible it tells us that we are all sons of God in Galatians 4 4 to 7 But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, uh, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his, uh, the spirit, sorry, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. We are adopted into sonship with God. We are heirs. We are his children. Uh, And and women, can I encourage you, please don't um, switch off just because you've heard the word sonship. And I'm not looking at Maddie tonight and saying, all right, son. But but equally, what what I am saying that when, when Paul is writing this, he's saying that the rights of sonship which in that culture was inheritance, in that culture meant you were an heir, in the culture meant you, there was significance attached. That right as sonship that to the father, the right, what it meant to be a son. When Paul is saying we are all adopted into sonship, he's being inclusive of both male and female. He's saying you are all heirs. You all have that right as, as sons and daughters, but you are all adopted into sonship. So women, please don't switch off when I'm saying you're a son of God. 
Just like men, you know, don't squirm, I guess, when you hear that we're the bride of Christ. Uh, but, but sonship is absolutely key, that we all have that right to sonship through Jesus. Sonship is this, it's a legal contract. It provides a deep security to us. In spite and despite what we do, we are sons. That, and that's what we see in the story, that in spite, despite, these two both failed human beings. There was a legal contract. These two were both sons of the Father. Just like we, in spite, despite, how much we mess up, how much we make this about us, we are adopted as God's sons and daughters. Sonship doesn't just provide us with a legal contract. It provides us with intimate, close access. As sons of God, we can be close to God. Uh, I mean, everyone has perhaps a different view of their father, but for me and my dad, that I know that I have an intimate relationship, a closeness with him. I'm able to say things to him. He's able to say stuff to me because we are son and father. There, there, there is a closeness in that relationship. You know, so when, when it's saying that we are sons of God, sons and daughters of God, it isn't just a legal thing but there is closeness attached, there is care attached, there is affection attached because of our stance through Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and sonship also provides us with major hope for our future, that through Jesus Christ, that we have an inheritance in heaven, that, that actually our hope is secure. No one can take that away from us. The, you know, in the Bible it says to be, be absent from the body is to be present for, uh, with the Lord, that, that we have that inheritance that no one can take away. Do we deserve any of this? Do we even deserve the legal contract? No. Do we deserve the closeness? Definitely not. Do we deserve the inheritance that we have for eternity in heaven? There is no way. But thank God that through his grace and mercy, he sent Jesus so as we could have this relationship with him. Whether you're an older brother in here today, whether you're a younger brother today, you know, we're all just lost. We've all messed up. We all fall short of God's glory. But can you accept today that he looks at you and calls you a son and a daughter of him? He responds to you not by coming at you like, like this with his fists up, but hugging, saying, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals, go and kill the fattened calf that he moved for us, sending Jesus to die on the cross so as we could have that intimate access, that relationship with him. And, you know, today, just as we close, I just want to affirm who God says we are. I'm just going to read a, a list of scriptures and then after that we're going to go into a time of worship and obviously the guys are going to come up and close the service. But, but I really want us to sit on this. Many of us are, are living our life out of a lens, seeing life through a picture, to put it a different way, of who we think God is and how he responds to us and who we think we are in Christ. And can I tell you that for the majority of people in this room, it will be a false picture. And actually today, the purpose of this message is for you to realize your stance. You are a son and a daughter of Christ, regardless, in spite, despite how much you mess up, how much you made this about him, about you instead of about him. Hey, if you need to come repent, say, God, I'm sorry, and come back before him today, then do that. 
But I don't want people in here today living and looking through that lens because it will cripple everything else you do. You'll struggle to be fruitful in life. You'll struggle to see other people's lives change. You'll keep falling back. You'll keep getting angry. You'll keep getting miserable. Uh, you'll keep putting pressure on other people. You'll, you'll keep arguing with people. You'll be falling out with people that you're on team with. You'll be disagreeing with stuff. You'll have a bad attitude about stuff. All because you're looking at life through a lens that, that this is you're striving for this, that this is about what you can do to twist God's arm to make him love you when he's saying, I already love you because you're a son and a daughter of me. So anyway, just as I finish, sorry, I'm getting carried away here, but I just want to finish by reading these. So why don't we just close our eyes? Um, I, I was saying to people when I preached this last week, close your eyes. And then everyone was saying, oh, I really want to take a picture of this list. So maybe do a bit of both because it is a really helpful list for us. But I also want us in this moment to sit and meditate on this. So perhaps after the worship's finished or something that, that it can come back up and you can get a photo. But for now, I'd love you just to sit and listen to what God says. These are obviously all have a scriptural reference, which I won't go into for time. But this is what the Bible says. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I am united with the Lord and I am one spirit with him. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a saint, a holy one. I have been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. I am free from condemnation. I can't be separated from the love of God. I've been established, anointed and sealed by God. I am confident that the good work that God has begun in me will be perfected. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love and self-control. I've been chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am a fellow worker with God. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I am God's workmanship created for good works. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you know what this is? This is the tip of the iceberg of what the Bible says about who we are in Christ. Come on, let's just pray just as a band want to get up and take the place. Lord, I, uh, Lord, I thank you for the people that are in this room tonight watching this. Lord, I, I pray that if one thing has got through tonight, it would be that, that we are sons and daughters of you. Lord, we make this so much more complicated than it's meant to be. Lord, today I just ask that you just begin to pour a fresh perspective into people of who you are and who they are in you. Lord, I pray you'd open people's eyes. Lord, I pray that people who've been living under these lies of who they are or who you are, Lord, I pray that they'd be broken in your name. I pray there'd be clarity today. Lord, I pray there'd be a real returning to the Father moments today. Lord, I pray there'd be repentance that happens in this room today. Lord, I pray there'd be an accepting of the forgiveness that you've given us today. Lord, I pray that there would be moments where older brothers and younger brothers come together today under the banner and the acceptance that we're all lost. None of us deserve this but we get to stand tall because of who you are. Lord, I just pray you come and move in this meeting. Holy Spirit, I just ask you just to come and uh, speak to us as a group of people today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
you for listening to this podcast from Influence Church. For any more information, visit our website, influencechurch.co.uk. Influence Church, empowering you to make a difference in your world for the kingdom of God.